Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, make sure you guys are following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as well. Make sure you're subscribing on YouTube. Really want to keep this Hazard Ground community growing. In these tough times and in these uncertain times, we're all trying to help out and support businesses in any way possible. So make sure you go to our Sponsors tab on our website, hazardground.com. And patronize some of the sponsors that help keep this podcast up and running. These are great companies. They're veteran-owned companies. And they all are big parts of the Hazard Ground community. So if you can, if you're so inclined, check out our sponsors page and support all of those businesses that support us. With that, don't forget about our Amazon promotion. Really simple. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground. But you have to go to hazardground.com first. That's how they know it came from us, and that's the way we get that little percentage that we can donate back. And again, finally, before we get to this week's episode, which is incredibly topical given all that's going on in the world We want to wish you the very best of health, the very best of safety and security in these very scary and uncertain times. Please make sure you're doing all you can to stop the spread of the coronavirus and get us back to normal as soon as possible. It's all our civic duty, and we know everybody on this podcast understands that, and we know everybody who is a fan of this podcast understands what it means to be in harm's way. So as brothers, sisters, civilians, friends, whatever it may be, let's all make sure we're doing everything we can to stop the spread of this virus and get our country and our America back to normal. Now onto this week's episode. And joining me this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast, a very special and unique guest who has just an incredible military career, starting out as a Navy officer, a fifth-generation career military man dating back to the Civil War. After a few years as a Navy officer, he followed his dream and became a Navy SEAL. Then, after a dozen years of being a Navy SEAL, he got out of the Navy and went to medical school and then became an Army doctor for 18 years, including being the command surgeon for Delta Force for four years with a combat deployment mission where he deployed several times and then ultimately went to deploy to Iraq in support of the Iraq War in 2003-2004. He's authored two books and just recently retired from family practice in North Carolina. He is Dr. Bob Adams joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dr. Adams, welcome, and thank you so much for being here, sir. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Just an incredible, incredible story. Uh, You've packed a lot into, let's say, three-plus decades. Well, I keep hearing that. It's just (laughs) like I like to stay active. And, you know, uh, my wife said, that's it, no more career changes. So we're... We're settling down. All right. I mentioned a moment ago that you're a fifth-generation military man. So was that the main thing that pushed you into the Navy? No, absolutely not. When I was in high school, uh, the Reader's Digest published in 1967, my junior year of high school, an article called Super Commandos of the Wetlands. And it announced, after five years of the SEALs being a super-secret organization, the existence of the Navy SEALs. 
And up until that time, I wanted nothing to do with the military, much to the great disappointment of my parents and grandparents, who were career military both. And um, I just saw that, read that article, walked in to see my dad and said, hey, dad, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. He didn't even know what that was. How do I get into the Naval Academy? I thought he was going to going to fall down and faint. <laughs> and that's what, that's what changed it all. And I showed up at the Naval Academy, interestingly, in 1969. And uh, said, I want to be a SEAL. And I went, no, you don't. Well, yeah, yeah, I really do. <laughs> and they said, well, there's no career in the SEAL teams. And back then there wasn't. It was, a, again, a brand new organization that uh, didn't have any senior officers in it. One of my classmates, interestingly, at, at the Naval Academy, who um, signed up the same time I did, turned out to be our first four-star Navy SEAL. So he rewrote the history, Eric Olson. So when you signed up, did you, you know, did you have a Navy SEAL contract? I mean, did did they even offer those back then? No, that was not offered back then. And there were only three Navy SEAL positions offered to our graduating class. Admiral Eric Olson got one of them. I did not. So I ended up spending a year and a half on a destroyer out of San Francisco waiting for an opportunity to apply from the fleet, which I did and was able to go to SEAL training about a year and a half later. And by the way, this is all in the middle of Vietnam. Any fears about deploying? Any fears from your family about signing up at that given time? Well, I never knew my draft number because, yes, 1969 when I entered the Naval Academy, it was it was uh, Vietnam War time. But when I graduated in 73, the war had ended. Uh, it really ended in in uh, end of 72. Now, what that meant was all of our... SEAL instructors were were combat veterans from Vietnam, and one of one of my uh, most revered instructors and current friends to this day is Mike Thornton, Medal of Honor winner. And, uh, and on the back of my first book, Six Days of Impossible Navy SEAL Hell Week, there's a quote from Mike Thornton that says, "Hey, these eleven guys are the best SEAL class I ever put through training," and and he stayed our friends. For our class friends and will join us this July for our reunion again. Incredible. So after finally getting into uh, Navy SEAL school, going to BUDS, I mean, what year, what time frame is this? And kind of bring me up to speed about how all that happened. So <clears throat> I, I was, again, on a destroyer out of San Francisco and really hating life. I did not enjoy destroyer time very much at all. I was the navigator and first lieutenant on the ship, and we cruised the Pacific with post-Vietnam-era sailors. And a lot of people that weren't around at that time don't realize that the military was, you know, began a, a major drawdown after the Vietnam War. And it was a time when, you know, you could get spit on for wearing a uniform, and judges would send uh, criminals to join the Army, Navy, and Air Force or go to jail, your choice. And so we didn't have the highest quality sailors and soldiers at that time. And um, about a year into my time on board ship, a a message came through the message center that says, next week there's going to be some SEAL recruiters in town. I was in San Francisco, and we'd love to see you. I went to my boss and said, I need next week, this day off next week. And he said, permission granted. And I said, well, if you hadn't, I was going to go AWOL. And <laughs> I went there and, 
and uh, tried out for the SEALs and passed the screening test and took me about six more months to get get a replacement arranged and uh, I used that time to run and get in shape. Um, and I thought I was ready, but I wasn't. <laughs> well, that was where I was going next because, I mean, obviously, you know, the evolution of BUDS, um, basically underwater demolition school, which is the SEAL school that uh, everyone has to go to for those non-military listening, it's incredibly tough now, uh, and it's it's morphed over the years. So what was it like back then in the early 70s? Well, that question comes up a lot, and interestingly, the one thing, the SEAL training uh, back then was one year long, and now it's almost 18 months long because they've added um, some additional SEAL training to the schoolhouse that in my day was done at the unit. You would graduate after a year, you'd go to the, to the um, UDT or SEAL team you were assigned to, and then they would do the additional six months of training. Now they go to Kodiak, Alaska for winter warfare training. They do all their parachutes, static line, and free fall. They do their uh, weapons, advanced weapons training, uh, and demolition work. Really cool stuff. Uh, as students, so they don't get to pin on their Budweiser, the SEAL insignia, until they've completed both basic BUDS and um, their SEAL tactical training portion of it. The one thing that has not changed, though, and this is worth noting is that Hell Week hasn't changed. I was the reason I wrote the book, uh, Six Days of Impossible, is that, you know, a lot of SEALs are writing books now and and they're very popular and people are reading them and every single one of them says, Oh yeah, Hell Week was hard. <laughs> but nobody's ever defined that. Nobody said, what exactly is this Hell Week thing that everybody seemed to be so proud that they completed? And there were seventy in my class and eleven of us that did it. And I just sort of said, you know, if nobody's going to write this down, I'm going to do it. it. Took me three and a half years to interview all the guys, and I did it. You know, as a physician looking back, trying to say, what is it that we had in common? Why did the eleven of us make it when sixty others didn't? And that was the whole purpose of it. So what my story tells is that it walks you through Hell Week, hour by hour, day by day. I introduce the eleven guys without telling you what I discovered, because what I discovered is significant. We did have one thing in common amongst us that allowed us to beat the odds and you know survive six days without sleep, soaking wet, freezing cold, push to your absolute physical and mental limits. And, um, and, and it just it, it was a research project. But now there's a now there's a reference book out there for people that that want to go and, and as a sidebar, one of my good friend doctor friend's son is graduating from Buds in June, and he's been keeping me up to date of his progress. Mm -hmm. He read my book as as one of his preparations to get ready to go, and I'm going to be going out there and give him one of my Budweisers to wear. I always ask this question of guys who go through special ops training. Uh, some people like to read up ahead of time and know what they're getting into. Other people don't because sometimes they feel like their mind, if they don't know what's next, it's easier for them just to focus on the task in front of them. So do you feel like, looking back on it, if you had known everything you needed to know about Hell Week and getting through BUDS, do you think it would have been easier for you? Um, no, nothing would have made Hell Week easier. Nothing <laughs> ever does. Knowing what's coming might remove some of the surprises that are built into SEAL training. 
you know, for example, you know, So Sorry Day, um, which is a Vietnamese accented So Sorry Day, um, is a demolition day where it happens the Thursday of Hell Week. And if you make it to Thursday, you're probably going to make it all the way. But they don't give you any warning that things are going to blow up around you and guns are going to be shooting and ground is going to be pushing you off from the explosions. And, and they're looking for people that are going to, you know, respond poorly to that environment. You know, if I knew it was coming, <laughs> it might have been not quite the surprise. And I know I tell the story of one of the officers who was next to me that uh, he when what we do during this demolition phase is we follow whistle commands. One tweet hit the ground, two tweets move towards the whistle, three tweets, three tweets get up and move again. And they do that to you all during the week, so you respond like Pavlov's dogs. But this officer, who is the other Naval Academy officer in our class, um, was head down, head covered, mouth open like you're supposed to. And an instructor walks up with a half-pound block of TNT and a fuse in it, he lights the fuse and he places the TNT block right next to my uh, friend John. And John looks at it and goes, okay, this is a difficult situation. And one of two things are going to happen. And he figured it out pretty quick. Either I'm going to be really hurt here or they, the instructor knows something I don't. And so he just kept his head covered, mouth open, and watched the fuse burn down. It was a dud. It was a fake. Because you know, no, you know, no instructor is going to be allowed to kill a kill a trainee. But he looks at it and goes, "Okay, you knew something I didn't, and that's good." <laughs> Interesting stuff. All right. So once you graduate from buds and you're out into the field as a seal, what's kind of next, and what time frame are we talking? So um, I, because of my time in the fleet. Um, I was about ready to get promoted to Lieutenant JG02. So that put me in, uh, I, I was assigned to Underwater Demolition Team 11, which was later renamed SEAL Team 5. All the UDT teams got renamed uh, SEAL teams in the 80s. And just because we did all the same thing, we were all the same people, and the need to separate the water and land mission wasn't there anymore. So I was lucky enough to have my very first assignment as a, as a platoon commander. And, um, and I deployed to the Philippines and Korea. Again, this is post-Vietnam, so nobody was shooting at us. It was a really, really wonderful time to be a frogman. We, we dove, we parachuted, we rappelled down mountains, we floated down rivers, and, and had, had a marvelous time getting ready for the next war that didn't come really until 1987 when we invaded Iraq. What was the toughest part about being a SEAL for you? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can, I don't, well, okay. I'll pick a toughest in that, except I'm going to add the proviso that every single day that I got to play in that world was a day of, of great joy and personal satisfaction. I would literally go to bed at night going, damn, I've got to sleep eight hours before I can get up and do this again. And, you know, but the, the biggest challenge, uh, particularly as an officer, was to live up the expectations of the men that I served with. Because, you know, in the SEAL teams then and even now, 
officers and enlisted go through the exact same training side by side, and you're on, you know you're literally on a first name basis by the time you're done, and everybody has to have you know complete trust in each other's abilities, and you know I think one of the things that I, I think back on all the time about the wonderfulness of operating with men who you knew, knew exactly what you knew and were capable of exactly what you were capable of. You know, I would brief a mission and I'd you know, be marching through, through a field at night, for example, and you know, I, knew, I knew without looking backwards that my platoon was in a V-shape behind me and that their space was exactly what we said it was going to be. And I knew which way their weapons were trained. And I knew if something happened, everybody was going to respond exactly like we planned. And that's, you know, unique in the military because most militaries, certainly in the, in the Navy ship time and in the Army, um, there's a lot of um, working on getting people to do their jobs. But in, in that particular environment, you didn't have to work too hard. What was it like being a SEAL at that time where you weren't part of being a country at war? You know, like now being a SEAL is obviously different. The, the environment's so kinetic. You're on deployment, you're off deployment. You're on deployment, you're off deployment. But in the 80s when you were there, or I should say late 70s, early 80s, it, it was more static. And I know the SEALs did stuff around the world covertly and things like that. And whether you're comfortable talking about that's up to you. But I just, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think, that you kind of didn't maximize your SEAL time or weren't able to maximize your SEAL time because we weren't a nation at war? Uh, yes, of course. Um, you know, SEAL's a combat force, and if you're not in combat, you're not honing skills that, in retrospect, even at the most elite of the special forces arenas, nobody wishes they did. Uh, I've never really spoken to anybody that says, I wish I had more combat in my life because whether whether it is uh, Army, Navy, or Air Force, combat sucks and it puts people in, in situations that they have to deal with for the rest of their lives. So I would answer your question by saying that 70s and 80s time frame for SEALs without an active shooting war going on, we deployed all over the world. We trained in nuclear submarines. We locked out of swimmer delivery vehicles and, and dry deck shelters that were bolted to the front of submarines. We parachuted static line at free fall. We practiced techniques and, you know, developed weapons skills and demolition skills that were, it just made it the most wonderful time to be in the military. Wonderful time. And, and, and I'll, but I'll add that that started to get more difficult the further away from Vietnam we were. Sure. Because history repeats itself. You know, after World War I, the, world, the, the, the war to end all world wars, um, there was no you know, significant officer corps, and, and there was no money to buy bullets and training. And the same thing happened in the, in the 80s. So all of a sudden, we found ourselves... Um, using old Korean War parachutes and demolition materials that were so old they were oozing goo out of it. And, you know, you try to buy bullets and you couldn't. Um, so it was a really frustrating time. You know, the, the Admiral Eric Olson's my classmate, who, who stuck it out, um, they, they learned, they trained, they got ready, and then when they were needed, you know, they did wonderful things. A lot of us kind of got frustrated and said, oh, come on, there's got to be something else. And 
Um, that's not what pushed me to, to med school at all. But, um, you know, most officer and enlisted men that go through buds, they don't have a trouble with life. They do well in life. They've already been tested sure, yeah. beyond most people's imagination. And so if they choose to do something else, they do well. All right. So you spend 12 years in the Navy SEALs. And again, I don't want to gloss over it because it's not an easy life. And I didn't mean to sort of say like, hey, you know, because we weren't a nation at war that uh, you guys really didn't do anything. Of course you did stuff. Uh, And if there's anything, you know, of that time that you'd really like to focus on, please let me know. But I'm just curious as to what was the decision point for you to get out of the Navy SEALs and start to do something different, not only in your military career, but with your life. So. It's interesting that what really uh, the opportunity that hit me came because uh, I transferred to the reserve SEAL teams to go back to school and seek seek opportunity in the business world. And I went back to school to Harrisonburg, Virginia, James Madison University, where I met the love of my life and married her and um, took that MBA to Washington, D.C. with her kicking and screaming the whole way and went to work for <laughs> Naval Sea Systems Command. And, you know, I was doing uh, my reserve SEAL time and working for the consulting world. And I hadn't done it for very long before I came home to my wife and I said, you know, there's something wrong with the business world. There's no morals. There's no ethics. There's only money. And, you know, for me to make a dollar, I got to take it from somebody else. And it, it just... I miss the sense of mission and the camaraderie that I had as a as a SEAL in, in, in that environment, and I wanted it back. And so she said, well, go ahead, try. So I pick up a phone call, and they said, take me back uh, on active service. And they go, nope, sorry, I'm still drawn down, don't need any more frogmen. Stay where you are, we'll call you if there's a war. And I went, well, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Stay where you are, we'll Damn. call you if there's a war. We'll call you if there's a war. And so I stayed in the reserves, and I did it about another six months, and I started thinking, well, what is there out there that I could do that would be as rewarding as the time I spent in the SEAL teams? And I walked home one day and said to my wife, you know, I've been thinking, and the only thing in my life that ever really excited me was the study of biology at the Naval Academy. It just, I loved it, and I started to think, well, what kind of jobs are there out there where biology could be part of what I do? And I don't have any doctors in my family, so I had to think about it. I went, well, maybe doctors do that. <laughs> so I looked, went up, came up one day, sweetheart, you know, I'm 30. We just had our first child. You're pregnant with our second one. I'd like to go to medical school. And she goes, really? <laughs> so we're going to be really poor for seven years. What do you think? Because if you say no, I won't do it. We just bought a house, We, you know, building our future, and I was making money as an MBA, so I just said, what do, what do you want to do? And she said, look, we were poor and happy when we got married. We can be poor and happy again. Go do something that, that makes you happy so that you can come home and hug our children. And That means I, you got a good one there, Dr. Bob. I got a good one. 38 years later, we're still married. Amen. I have five grandchildren now. Amen. That uh, must have been music to your ears, you know, to get that kind of support and love from your wife. So you begin this journey into medical school. You said you didn't know what you were getting into when you were getting into the SEALs. Did you know what you were getting into when you went to medical school? Oh, mostly I did. Um, You know, I was not a great student at the Naval Academy. Um, I think my grade point average was about a 2.8, which would not get you into med school. But when I went back to get my master's degree, 
I knew I might need better grades if I was going anywhere else. And so I got really good grades in my master's program. And um, that gave me a, it gave me an ability to, uh, uh, you know, be competitive. But I applied to 11 medical schools, only got interviews from three because by then I was 35 years old because to get into med school, I had to, I had to work full-time as an MBA for almost three years while I went back to school and retook all of the prerequisites again, biochemistry, um, physics, organic chemistry, every single one of those courses that I had taken before were ten, more than 10 years old, so they didn't count. I had to retake them all. But I made sure that I got a 4.0 on those. So even with all of that, three schools interviewed me. One accepted me, and, and Wake Forest University put me on a on a standby list. But the one that accepted me was in Richmond, downtown uh, city of Richmond, not a great place to have kids live for four years. So I uh, wrote Wake Forest University and tried something that worked. I said, hey, he attaches my um, acceptance letter and, and, and deposit for medical school at Wake Forest, and I've just been awarded a military scholarship, so I don't need any financial support. Please accept me. <laughs> Two days later, you're accepted. <laughs> wow. All right, so you get through medical school. I mean, again, I, I hate – there's just so much to cover. I hate glossing through medical school because obviously yeah. it's not easy. Um, but what do you remember about medical school, biggest challenge, memory that stands out to you the most, that sort of thing? Um, medical school – was a was a lucky event for me because Wake Forest University on the year that we the class of 91 arrived had just decided to start a new educational program called the parallel curriculum and instead of spending two years jammed into classrooms memorizing everything on God's green earth we were actually allowed to do clinical work right from day one and we would meet in small groups. We'd set our own study goals. We'd go away. We'd come back. And, it, and, and the stresses were, were much, much less for um, the 11 of us. No, no, it's all right. 18 of us out of a class of 108. 18 of us were allowed to do this new approach to medicine, which had begun in McMaster University in Canada, and try to put, bring clinical into our studies from day one. So I was always... Um, more interested than stressed, although it was really hard and the tests were still hard and the memorization was still necessary, it had a clinical relevance to everything we learned. And because I was on a military scholarship, I also was allowed to spend a month every summer in military hospitals but from first year on and um, getting to see how the military medical system worked, get to meet people, interview for future jobs, and... Um, and, and, and I'll throw this I'll throw this medical school story in because it's it's fun. Uh, when I showed up as a third year medical student at Madigan Army Medical Center, which was where the best family practice program in the Navy and the Army was, um, I, I told the commander there I said, I, "Hey, I want to I want to come here for my residency." He said, "That's nice, Bob. You know, well, we, you're you're on the list. We'll we'll consider you." Well, I came back again for my fourth year. And he goes, Bob, you're not supposed to come to the same place twice. Um, we already met you. We liked you. Um, and I, yeah, but sir, you don't understand. When I fill out my, my wish list for residency, it's going to say Madigan and kill me, kill me, kill me, kill me. 
<laughs> and he goes, okay, all right, I see where you're going with this. But he's, but then he said, you know, you're, um, you're not as competitive. Some of the other applicants, you know, why should I take you? And we had a little conversation. And then that weekend I got in my car, pulled out some, rented some scuba tanks, went to the hood canal, went scuba diving by myself, which I don't normally do for Dungeness crab, which is a amazingly delicious delicacy that lives in the Washington state area, filled up a cooler with crab, called him up and said, Colonel, you told us medical students that if we ever had a problem, that we could call you personally. And he goes, absolutely, Bob. What's the problem? And I said, well, sir, I got a cooler full of Dungeness crab and no place to cook them. And he paused and he goes, okay, and what time can I expect you, Bob? And I got the residency. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. <laughs> you know, you mentioned that you were going through all this in the – early 90s the golf war had kicked off at that point any sort of regret that you couldn't have been part of that oh yeah big time um my reserve remember i said i'm gonna yeah maybe yeah. said we'll call you when you need you and i swore myself in to the army wearing my navy 05 commander's hat for the first time i had just been promoted to, to commander in the seal teams and became a second lieutenant in the army to start all over again. And within a month, I believe I get noticed that my reserve seal team had been activated and was going to war. <laughs> I go, what? Oh, and I, you know, I literally, I picked up the call, I got pick up the phone and called again. I said, can I, can I, can I, can I come back? You know, I can put off med school. And they said, sorry, son, you're second lieutenant in the army now. And there was, you know, nothing you could do about it. So that was a regret. I, I would have loved to, to go with, with my guys, but that opportunity was not afforded. Wow. That's terrible. All right. So you aren't a medical school. What was the logic behind doing army as opposed to just going into private practice and going down that road? Yeah. And I get asked that question a lot also because the, the, I had a two-star admiral who was the Dean of students at Wake Forest university who swore me in. And after, after he swore me in as a second lieutenant in the army, he goes, you know, Bob, I always congratulate people when they get these health profession scholarships and I swear them into the army. I said, but I just turned a Navy commander into an army second lieutenant. And I just can't bring myself to congratulate you. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> the demotion. I said, but, but I explained it to him. I said, look, it, it, it's really a simple decision process. Um, I applied to the military, army and Navy for a scholarship to med school, which is very expensive. And the Navy came back with a three-year offer, and the Army came back with a four-year offer. And I mean, and I thought, well, this is easy to fix because Congress is going to obviously pay for four years of my school. So I put on my dress blue uniform. I went to Washington, D.C. with both those scholarships in hand. I went to the Navy office, and I said, look, I'm going to med school for four years on, on Congress's dollar. You need to match the Army's offer so I can be a Navy physician. And he said, sorry, son, you don't qualify for the four-year and, the, and just, you know, there were a lot of people in that office who were very upset with the, the commander's decision at the time. And I told the same story to the admiral. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's no way that happened. And I was like, he said, before I throw you in, let me make a phone call. He goes up, he calls the office in D.C., discovers that what I told him was true, and he comes back, he goes, you know what, <sighs> two things here. I think I can call the Secretary of the Navy and fix this before you make me turn you into an Army officer. Um and and this ain't ever going to happen again. And that captain's pretty clear on that point. 
I, and I and I said, well, you know, sir, if you had told me this six months ago, I'd be I'd be wearing a navy uniform now. But I discovered something in the six months between being accepted and matriculating into med school that when I called my naval academy friends who were navy doctors, they all told me to go into the army, and they said that because the army has a much more robust medical corps, better hospitals, sure, more modern. Yeah. Um, they don't have ships that go out to sea for six months at a time and take their doctors with them. And that was a biggie because my wife said, please don't go to sea for six months at a time because I may not be here when you get back. <laughs> and so that was a big deciding factor. And I said, sir, let's make it happen the way it's planned. And he did. And I'm really glad it worked out that way. I had a hard time um, learning the Army language and the Army leadership uh, chain, you know, chains of command. And uh, my Army people really had troubles with me using words like bulkhead and ladder and field day, which are all Navy terms. But, you know, I eventually figured it out, and so did they. Your time as an Army doctor, um, you know, it obviously it morphs into uh, leading you on to a connection with Delta Force. How does that happen? So residency was in Washington State, and that was three years. And we asked for an East Coast assignment because my wife's from Virginia, and was given the Fort Bragg assignment. And I mean, I hadn't been there two months before I got a knock on the door saying, "Hi, we're this um, organization that we can't talk about, and we need a doctor. Would you come play with us?" Because I was walking around Fort Bragg in an Army uniform with a Navy SEAL patch on my left breast, which is permitted and encouraged. And um, I said, you know, guys, <clears throat> been there, done that, and I'm not really ready to go operational again. So, you know, check back with me in a couple years after I've delivered a few hundred babies and um, learned, learned about what I was trained to do, and then maybe we'll consider it. And almost two years to the day, knock, knock, knock. How about now, Doc? <laughs> and how about how about now? Worked out real well because I said yes, and I ended up being the command surgeon for Delta for four years, and we did some amazing things. Okay, like what? Amazing men. Well, you know, Delta is not a, it's not classified. It's not secret. They're a, not they're anymore. A at least rapid reaction force. <laughs> <laughs> they're a rapid reaction force. Delta Force and SEAL Team Six are both the tip of the spear that the president and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs can pick up a phone and call and launch. And on their phone call alone, we're airborne in four hours from from being sound asleep at home to being locked and loaded on an airplane somewhere else, four hours. And you know, it's kind of, I want to tell this old by the way story. On the day I reported to Delta for my indoctrination briefing, I'm walking into the briefing room, and I bumped into my Navy SEAL classmate, Eric Olson, who we spoke about. So at the time, he was a captain, and I was a lieutenant colonel. And um, I go, Eric, what are you doing here? And he goes, Bob, what are you doing here? I said, I work here. He goes, so do I. What are you doing? Oh, I'm the command surgeon. I asked him, he goes, I'm the commanding officer of SEAL Team 6. And we both were arriving on the Delta compound to get our initial orientation briefing on the same day. Small world. When you get that close to guys who are doing the elite of the elite fighting and 
you now transition from one of those guys as a Navy SEAL to, and I hate the phrase it this way, just a doctor. <laughs> Was there any part of you that kind of wanted to throw that white coat off, put some kit on, and get out there and do the fighting yourself? Sure. You know, in the back of your mind, it's like that. Um, but, you know, ages and stages. By now, sure, yeah. you know, I'm a lieutenant colonel. I'm in my 40s. You know, the SEAL teams are a young man's job. And, you know, Eric Olson, as a full bird captain, won the Silver Star for leading a rescue mission in Mogadishu. And I called him. I said, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> Bob, I was the only guy, so I had to do it. But, you know, he, wouldn't, he probably wasn't the best qualified, but he certainly could have been the most capable. But, you know, another example, as soon as I got my gear issue with Delta, um, I picked up this 45 caliber issue weapon that was prettier than any gun I'd ever seen. And it was a match grade because they have the best of the best. And I said, I got to go shoot this and see if I can hit anything with it. And uh, one of my medics heard me say that who had been last year's champion shooter on the unit. And he goes, come on doc, I'll go shooting with you. So we went out, we went out to the range, which is right there. And, <clears throat> We set up a target from a 25-meter range and said, let's just fire a you know, 200-point qual course. And, uh, and I fired a 199, pulled one of the rounds, and he fired a 198, pulled two of the rounds. I looked at him smiling, going, there, ha, ha, ha. And he goes, okay, all right, okay. Now let's do something different. And I could hear the challenge in his voice. I go, well, what are we going to do? He goes, we're going to move up to seven and a half yards from a target that's as big as a you know, butter plate. I said, well, that's not going to be hard. He goes, no, no. We're going to fire 10 rounds with a clip change in five seconds. So five rounds in each clip, fire it in five seconds. I got it. And he gives me a little timer device, which beep, and you draw you draw from a holstered position. So I go beep, he draws, he goes bang, 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 drops the clip, loads another one, bang, 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 just that fast. And I thought to myself, ha, 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 now let's just go see if you hit anything. And we walk up to the target, and there's the hole the size of a half dollar, and all rounds touching. And I looked at him, I go, how the hell did you do that? I'd never seen it done before. Not in the SEAL teams. They, they, well, there are a lot of SEALs that can do it now, but back in those days, not so much. And uh, he just looked at me, and he goes, Doc, I put a lot of rounds downrange. And that's when I learned that the Delta Force, that small, small unit, fired more rounds per year than the entire 82nd Airborne Division fired. They, they, they put a lot of rounds downrange. They're really good at what they do. And I tell people all the time, I said, what those guys in SEAL Team 6 and Delta can do with a gun, you wouldn't believe if I told you. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive beyond belief. Yeah. When you think back on some of the most challenging moments in medicine, do they rival the most challenging moments as a SEAL? Oh, absolutely. They do. Not physically, of course. But, well, no, sure. I mean, it's not a straight line comparison per it, se, but doctors personally. Doctors deal with you. more life and death challenges right. than, than any special operator does because we deal with it on an almost, you know, daily to weekly basis. You know, I've, when I look, I delivered babies, family practice in the military is unique in that we're insured by the United States government. So we don't buy malpractice insurance. We don't have lawyers telling us what we can and cannot do. And family practitioners are trained in obstetrics and gynecology and dermatology and surgery. We're the only specialty that does it all. 
that in the military were allowed to do it all. But I, uh, you know, when I wrote my second book, which comes out next month, called Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey, I had a hard time not putting a lot in there about delivering babies because that is a really scary place to be uh, when something goes wrong, which it does routinely. And, you know, graveyards are, are full, old graveyards are full of young women who died in childbirth and childbirth-related events. You know, I delivered twins. I've delivered quadruplets. I've delivered babies that came out butt first. I've delivered babies that looked fine until they went into shock on the table right after you deliver them. And, you know, as a family doc, I'm also the pediatrician. So that, you know, mommy was mine and the kid was mine. And um, probably I think the most frightening events in my life all are related to those last few minutes around the birth of a new new life. It's incredible. Um you know, you really so graciously explained it. It kind of just, you know, puts it in perspective because it seems so routine for many of us, right? You know, you hear all those statistics. Oh, there's, you know, 67,000 babies born a day and 67,000 people die each day. And it seems so numerical and so sort of matter of fact. That, but when, when you put it in those terms, it, it adds a different meaning and a different perspective to it. Oh, very much so. Thank you. So after all this time as uh an army doctor and in uh, Delta, you end up actually deploying in 2003, 2004 to Iraq um, with yeah, the 82nd I, Airborne I, Division. I, I, I pulled a, pulled a, pulled a, a fast one on the U S army because the army and the Navy, they want you to move. And I had kids by now in, in high school on Fort Bra- in the Fort Bragg Fayetteville area. And I, you know, I didn't want to move. I still had four or five years to go before retirement. And, you know, the Army kept calling, going, where do you want to go now? Where do you want to go? We need to move, go someplace else. And one of the perks of being assigned to the Tier 1 units is when you leave them, you get your choice of duty assignments without without question. Um, and so, because it's a PCS move, permanent change of station move, to go to one of these units because we disappear. Our, we, we literally are erased from the face of the earth, paperwork-wise. If you were to send a letter to the Army saying, send this to Colonel Adams, they go, we don't know who he is. There's no soldier of record um, with that name. And um, then when you resurface, one of the one of the perks is you get to ask where to go, and they, they have to give it to you as a general rule. And um, so I said, I'd like to be reassigned to Fort Bragg. <laughs> so I PCS'd from Fort Bragg to Delta and then from Delta back to Fort Bragg. And that locked me in, you know, pretty much to get me to retirement. And um, the Army went, oh, you got us, Bob. Okay. But no sooner had I been reassigned than the 82nd Airborne got activated. And all doctors in the Army are part of a professional filler system. And we're assigned to a combat unit. And, you know, those of us that jump out of airplanes would always jump with the unit that we're uh, assigned to. And I'm, I'm going to take a step backward before I finish this story because it's, it's fun to note that in 1991, when I, I'm sorry, 1994, when I graduated residency and showed up on Fort Bragg in an Army uniform, for my very first job as, a, as an Army doctor, young major, 
uh, I got a phone call saying, sir, stop what you're doing. Report to your profess unit, your professional facility unit. Uh, they're expecting you, and you're going in lockdown. For what? Well, we were getting ready to invade Haiti, and it's an airborne operation, 3,500 paratroopers. And I show up going, uh, what am I supposed to do here? And, I, and, and the, the guy in charge of the assault force says, you're on jump aircraft number with me, number one with me, Doc, and your only job is to keep me alive. Oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> so we, we launched with 3,500 paratroopers on route to Haiti. A lot of people don't know this little bit of history. But Colin Powell was in Haiti and negotiating with the president. And after he kept saying, you know, I'm not leaving, Powell said, well, I, I now need to let you know that two hours ago the 82nd Airborne launched with 3,500 paratroopers. When they get here, we're going to kill you. He said, okay, I quit. You win. And they turned us around and brought us all back, and we never had to launch. But uh, that was my first introduction to how quickly something could happen in the military. Now fast forward to... 2003, and I was commanding officer of the 82nd Airborne Division clinic there, loving my job, delivering babies, taking care of kids, watching them grow old, and uh, get the same phone call. Uh, we need you to come on down the road here and join us because we're on, on route to Iraq. And I went with the 782nd Charlie Company, which is the medical company, uh, to Iraq to, to a the Devil's Triangle area of Habania. Yeah, familiar. We were the we were the very first um, forces there. You know, the the the, the uh, initial assault had happened, but now we're settling in and building a clinic facility in a bombed out airfield. And uh, we you know we had to start with nothing. We didn't have any power. We didn't have any water. We didn't have anything other than what we carried on our backs. So we built a big clinic there. Uh, with emergency room and mass casualty capability, which I ran for about four months. And then I, I got to tell this story because it's it's such a fun uh, recollection for me. I, we got things settled up there in bad guy country, and I get a call from Baghdad saying, we need you here in Baghdad to run a program and spend $250,000 to hold a medical conference because by now the country was in control, and um, we're going to bring in 500 Iraqi physicians to Baghdad. I want you to fly in 32 doctors across every medical specialty into the green zone here where it's safe, and we're going to hold a four-day conference and teach the doctors of Iraq what had changed in the 25 years that Saddam Hussein had been in charge. Because for 25 years, and a lot of people don't know this either, Doctors were prohibited from leaving the country. Internet and television and communication was locked down, so nobody knew what was changing in the world around them. You know, if a doctor was allowed to go to a conference, he didn't come back, so they weren't allowed to leave. So what we did in four days is we taught Iraq what had changed in the 25 years that they'd been on lockdown. And it was a really fascinating experience to include the fact that Two days before the conference was to begin, I'd spent most of the $250,000 in refitting a, a, a hospital in outside the green zone in Baghdad that we felt was relatively safe, but we had snipers and Marines guarding the area. I get a letter from a doctor that was supposed to be coming saying, half my family are good guys and half my family are bad guys, 
and the bad guys are going to blow up your conference. I went, oh, crap. <laughs> so I went to the British two-star in charge of that uh, green zone area, and I said, sir, we just spent a whole lot of money on a conference that's going to get bombed. And the only way I see this continuing, if you want to do it, is you got to give me a company of Marines, and you got to give me a bunch of buses, and we got to do a bait and switch. When the doctors show up at that conference in Baghdad, we need to bus them inside here, the green zone, and you need to give me the conference facilities. I know it's doing other things, but up to you, sir. What do you What do you want? He called in his ops officer, and he goes, "We got a company of Marines and a bunch of buses. We can give to the doc." Yes, sir, we do. And we pulled a bait and switch two days later and ran the conference inside the green zone. And it was a big success. Matter of fact, I got to throw this in there too, because I'm, I'm actually looking at a plaque on my wall here that says Iraqi Medical Specialty Society. The upraising the specialty society is in a new hope to contact the world. Big brass plaque that they had made there. And it the doctors that came to that conference were in tears and hugging all the Americans and thanking them for their freedom. You know, you don't hear this story about Iraq very often. And I still am in contact with a number of those doctors who have since uh, come to the United States for additional training, and some of them are living here. And they, all, they, they still send me thank you, America, emails. You know, we appreciate our newfound freedoms. It's pretty incredible. Um harder job uh, being in regular family practice, even though it was in the military or triage in combat when you were with the 82nd? Well, no, no. Explain that question. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you were in a deployed war zone, right? And you're taking care of guys who are coming in with combat wounds. Yes. Uh, that's, that's a different challenge than necessarily delivering babies or taking oh, care you. of people, you know, yeah, uh, in the cozy confines the of North Carolina. Yeah, I got to tell you, I was not trained for what I had to do in in, in a mass casualty situation, you know, in in, a, in bad guy country. I would nobody nobody had trained me for uh, mass casualty triage and treatment and gunshot wounds, multiple gunshot wounds, ex- explosive injuries, um, and I wrote about a number of those horrendous events in in this newest book, just because. I have to write it down. I got to tell people what happened because you're going to go, really? Um, You know, one of the most memorable that I had, just to clarify, I was trained in gunshot wound management when I was with Delta. I would go down to Charity Hospital in New Orleans and treat 10 and 15 gunshot wounds a night. Um, but it's in a civilian setting with a you know robust hospital backup and trauma surgeons standing by to do everything that needs to be done. When I got direct and I was the senior physician, I didn't have any surgeons on my staff. I had a pediatrician, you know, internal medicine, uh, PAs, and, you know, I got a call at 2 o'clock in the morning one night saying, hey, we got a multiple gunshot wound casualty on route to your location for an ambulance transfer because we need to get them to the surgical um, operating site two hours from me, but they were two hours in the other direction and ambulances can't make the whole trip. By regulation, so this guy shows up in my clinic at two o'clock in the morning, and I got my medics and my staff there. He comes in with a complete right arm amputation, held on with a tourniquet and a thread of skin, three gunshot wounds in the chest and abdomen, with one exit wound in the back, um, IVs in his in his groin and in, in his subclavicular area that weren't working, and he's conscious and and. 
we've got to get him stabilized, get another IV started. And uh, I called my pediatrician in and I said, look, nobody, we can't get IVs in this guy's vein. He's blood out so much. We got no blood pressure barely. And he tried, you know, he, I said, if you can get an IV in the scalp of a baby, you ought to be able to get an IV in this guy. And he tried and couldn't. And I kind of looked at my team and I went, all right, guys, you know, I've done this on animals before, but I'm going to do a venous cut down on his ankle and find the vein and thread it. And I said, go get me the book, put it on his leg so I can see what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I did. I followed the advanced trauma life support manual guidelines, having never done this on a human being, found the vein, threaded the IV in, got him some morphine, got him some fluid, and got him out of there on an ambulance, and he lived. And I, you know, I look back on that going, wow, wow. It's unreal. <laughs> really, you know, I never thought I would have to do that. I mean, it's it's one of those crazy things that I, I guess happens in the medical profession a lot. You never see something until you see it, right? But you think you've seen yeah. everything until you've seen something you haven't seen. Exactly correct. And there's oh, hundreds of examples of that, yes. So how do you know when it's time to call it a career as far as the military is concerned? Um, so I think my choice was the same as everybody else's. Uh, I retired in 2006 to go to private practice. And at that time, you know, I was a full bird colonel and I was in, in commanding an administrative department in charge of deployment uh, soldiers, primarily administrative. And my doctor time was, was very part-time. And I, I went into medicine later in life. You know, I did started med school at 36, my internship at 40. And now I'm still in the prime of my doctor life, loving what I do, finding myself assigned to colonel jobs. And, I, you know, Surgeon General called me when I submitted retirement papers and said, what can I do to keep you? Anything. I said, let me see patients. Uh, except for that, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I need to do colonel things. So I said, well, that's, you know, in all honesty, sir, thank you for allowing me to serve, but that's why I'm going to get out and go, go back doing what I love to do full time. And so for me, it was, you know, it was a life uh, choice. I wanted to continue to be the doctor that I had learned to love to being. What's different about family practice than the military, if anything at all? Oh, no, it's huge difference, huge difference. And it, and it boils down to the military and the absence of malpractice rules and regulations. And that doesn't mean we practice bad medicine. I mean, we don't have lawyers in the military telling us what we cannot do. I didn't pay any malpractice insurance in the military because if you wanted to sue me, you sued the United States government. And so frivolous lawsuits didn't happen. You know, if there was a real, if there was a medical error done in the military, the military just said, let's get together, figure out what the damage are, we'll write you a check. And, you know, in the military world, as soon as I got out, I got, you know, I get a call from my new insurance company going, we're not going to let you deliver babies anymore, or we're going to add $90,000 to your malpractice insurance rates. I went, oh, well, that's not going to happen. And, oh, by the way, you can't do men's vasectomies anymore because that's a surgical procedure, and we'll add $6,000 if you do that. I went, well, I can't do enough baby delivering or vasectomies to cover the cost of the malpractice insurance. So I had to stop doing some of the things that I was very good at. And I missed that. And the, um, and I hear that a lot from the you know, civilian doctors, you know, we train to do all these things and then we get out there to do it for real and the insurance companies won't let us do it. 
So that's probably the biggest difference. All right. So you just retired from private practice as well. What was the reason for that? I mean, is it just time to do move on to the next stage of your life? <laughs> so um, it absolutely was because for about a, a year, um, I had I had gone to part time trying to decide how much longer I was going to put up with a lot of the administrative nonsense that our current medical system puts onto doctors. You know, we've gone to electronic medical records are very difficult. The EMRs, the electronic medical records are constantly telling you what you're doing is right or wrong. And computers really are not very good doctors. And so it's frustrating um, to be a doctor in today's day and age. Plus, insurance companies are denying prescriptions we write, telling mm-hmm. us, you know, what we can and cannot do. My patients are coming in in tears going, I can't afford my medicine, so I, I'm not going to fill it. What else can you do, doctor? And so it's a, it, it's a real and, – and when you can't do anything to help them, it's very frustrating. So I, let, I, you know, I kept telling my, my patients that, you know, I'm not going to retire until it really stops being fun to come to work. And after about a year of watching continually worsening policies and procedures in the corporate um, medical world, it got too hard. And uh, some one thing just sort of pushed me over the edge uh, that had to do with administrative policies and procedures that were wrong for me and wrong for my patients. And I said, you know, I'm not going to fight this fight because it's just not worth the trouble. And I, I, I had my military retirement. I got my Social Security, and I said, I'm comfortable. I don't need to, to uh, keep putting up with this. And, and happily, just to point out my frustration with the system, right after I announced my retirement, I got a call from a company called Victory Strategies, who is a company owned and operated by Navy SEALs. And uh, they do management and leadership consulting services to the, the Fortune 500 companies. And they said, how'd you like to come work for us and teach the medical system what they're doing wrong? And so literally just last month, I signed on with them as a managing director. And um, I've had a few talks already to groups around town, and they seem receptive to learning better business practices. And, um, you know, my hope is I can be a, a factor to move the medical uh, hierarchies in a better direction. Because we all know the medical system's broken. we got to fix it. Sure. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, your thoughts on the coronavirus and where we are as we record this here on March 24th. I mean, you know, there's so much going on. I'm just curious from both a medical and personal opinion. So from a medical opinion, this is a bunch of hooey. And I say that because the coronavirus is a cold virus. This is one of seven cold viruses that are out there. The only thing unique about this one is we haven't built up a natural immunity to it yet because it's new. And when you compare the numbers that are being used to shut down our lives and our economies and our and very likely parts of our future, they make no sense mm-hmm. because there have been 38 million flu infections in the United States. 24,000 deaths, and we're shutting down the world for, for, for a few hundred. And, and, and children are essentially immune to this. And I have a theory, I can't prove this, but 
the, since there are six other coronaviruses that bloom every winter and die every spring, then every mother that's ever had a baby has been exposed to four or five or six of these coronaviruses, and they've built a natural immunity to it. And they've passed that on through the placenta to their children, and that's why children aren't dying from this. Old people are dying from it. So what's the easy solution? Is there one? I mean, look, I, I get and I've always maintained that the facts don't match the fear on this thing. Um, but to that end, you know, I get why we are where we are. I mean, you're not going to be able to control the way we communicate, the, the social media, the way, you know, we consume information. You can't slow that down on any size, way, shape or form. So I get why we are where we are with this thing. But is it as simple to say a two-week quarantine for the country would start to turn the numbers in a direction that people would feel more comfortable? Well, it's a, the answer to that question is going to be made by people way above our level. Sure. And I'm starting to hear secretaries of the VA and people in the you know, current administration say, you know, we've probably overreacted to this, and you know, now we have to make amends financially. But if you simply look at the new cases chart in Wuhan, China, where this began, you see that the infection there lasted 81 days, and it went away. And they haven't had any new cases at the epicenter there in five days now. And what did they do to make the virus go away? Nothing. The only thing they did was, you know, hunker down to prevent the spread, but it died like all coronaviruses do in the spring, they have a life cycle. It's about three months long. And I, um, I was invited by a local newspaper to comment on my, these, these same issues yesterday. And I said, why don't you go to the, the uh, CDC website and look at the only chart that I'm watching, which is the new cases chart in the United States. And it looks exactly like the new cases chart in Wuhan, China, which lasted about 81 to 90 days. And it went up for three weeks and it went down. And that's what's happening in the U.S. now. With five days in a row, we've re reported decreasing numbers of new cases. What scares people, and this is, this is the media's fault, is they don't point that out. They don't make a comparison between the hundreds of people that this is affecting and the millions of people that the flu virus is affecting. You know, we've never shut down our schools or our businesses for the 25 to 50,000 deaths every year from the flu. We don't make the flu virus mandatory. Only half of our nation ever gets a flu shot, but we let it happen. Make your choices and live and die by your choices. So this is going to go away fairly soon. You're going to see people in the next week or two go, oh, well, looks like it's over. You know, Wuhan, China, have already they've removed their restrictions. Everybody's back to work. Everybody's out doing their thing. Schools are open. We'll do the same thing. Well, it's listen, it's great to hear. I 1,000% trust your judgment as a medical doctor, and I hope you're correct. Um, yeah, me too. I can't prove this, by the way. I'm just <laughs> betting on the odds. Six out of the seven coronaviruses do this, so I'm just betting that this one will too. Well, and again, to that end, it is about there. There is a still a certain amount of social responsibility that we all have to each other, right? I, I don't think that's removed. And e even if this wasn't, if this was the regular flu, there's a certain amount of social responsibility we have to our fellow yeah, citizens, protect each other, yes. right? And so, from that standpoint, I think if we treat it with the same sort of, um, you know, social responsibility, I, I think we're going to be fine. But and I would agree with you too. Until these numbers start eclipsing flu deaths 
I'm personally not going to get worried. I'm personally, I, I don't feel like, you know, again, my kids, are they at risk? I, I can't say. Those are the, really the only people I'm worried about. I'm a very healthy guy. Uh, I work out all the time. I'm not worried about a disease taking me out, like a, a flu virus taking me out. It just it, 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 There's probably an exception to this, but I checked the CDC recently, and they don't have any reports in any country worldwide of a child dying of this virus. Child meaning what? Like under six, under five? Under 19 years old. Uh, or under 19, really? Yeah. Under 10, it's, it's absolutely. So nobody under 10 has died, they, and, they're, and, they're, and they're not getting that sick either. So you know, our children are not at that big a risk. Well, based I, on real world, you know, CDC reported statistics. And does it frustrate you that this sort of narrative can't be out there? It does. It does. And I've, you know, I've put it out on social media and a number of doctors have come on board to say, wow, doc, thanks for saying that. You know, somebody needed to, we agree with you completely. Um, but uh, I don't know what, what really, what's motivating the media to turn this into something that it's not. I don't know what their motivation is. Well, I know what their motivation is. It's called viewers and clicks and likes and, you know, response on right. social media. Yeah. That, that's that's what it is. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's got to be a factor. You know, it's it, this is still big business one way or another. You know, media is still one of the largest businesses in this country. Uh, and, and it has so many tentacles there, Dr. Bob, that, uh, you know, it's it's it reaches to the lowest levels, right? I mean, you got 13 and 14-year-olds now putting on CNN and Fox News to figure out what's happening next and what the death count is and so on and so forth. And that wasn't happening before. You know, it, it just look at... Yeah, and they've, and they've squeezed a trillion dollars out of our tax dollars. So yes. So far, at least a trillion dollars, and that's going to be a business stimulus. And, you know, they've got, they've got, um, they've got their agenda and they're running it well. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, it's, uh, if just look at when it was H1N1, uh, you know, they had more deaths at that than they do right now from coronavirus. Yeah, 2009 was the H1N1. What a lot of people don't know, just again, put this in perspective. It was the H1N1 that caused the great flu epidemic, flu epidemic of 1918. In, I'm sorry, oh, really? yeah, 1918. That was an H1. We dug up 100 million bodies, or we had 100 million dollar bodies we could dig up, uh, who died worldwide from that flu. When it showed up again in 2009, and we had this huge death toll from that, um, we went, "Oh no, what are we going to do?" And the H1N1 is part of the vaccine that we've been given since 2009. And interestingly, the H1N1 showed up again this year. So it's never gone away. There's minor mutations, they think, that occur in their RNA, but its basic designation is H1N1. It's here again this year, and it's in our flu shots, and people aren't getting them. Yeah, well, it, the government <laughs> went to a point where making all of us in the Army get one. I, 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 oh, absolutely. And I checked, I checked with the... Uh, the core surgeon on Fort Bragg recently I said, what's your immunization rate in the Army? He goes, greater than 95%. Yeah. I said, well, good. That's why, you know, in the United States in 1918, more U.S. soldiers died of the H1N1 flu in 1918 than had died in World War One, World War Two, and all the war since. Wow. Yeah, wow. And, and coronavirus has killed a few hundred. There's no, there's just no comparison. Uh, I know. And I, I wish people could get the perspective. I really, really do. Because, 
It's they'll so get it important. in retrospect. We learn from of our course. From we learn from our past. They'll they'll they'll, they'll get this. I I just hope that my assumptions are correct. We'll see. We'll know. We'll know in a few weeks. Well, and and again, you have to remember, like as far as the media is concerned, let's go back to H one N one in two thousand nine. You know, we just had the market fallout in two thousand eight. We're still embroiled in two wars, right? H one N one gets buried as the fourth or fifth story on the news because you know Obama was just elected in two thousand eight, right? You had so many other things to focus on. Right now, in in reality, the only thing you have to focus on in America is prior to this coming around, really, is a very good economy, an election coming up, the Democratic you know race that was going on, and that's it. I mean, you know, everything else is pretty much routine, right? Like. This was an easy thing to trump everything because there was no other bleeds that leads kind of news going out there. And so from that standpoint, the coronavirus was able to consume the rest of the news cycle because there wasn't anything to overtake it. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. That was a very good point. You know, and so H1N1, which killed a lot more people than corona has, never got the pub this way. They never had a death toll counter on, on the television set. You know, they, they weren't putting out websites of all the people who had H1N1. They, you know, some of it was too. They probably didn't, weren't as easily able to gather statistics as quickly back then as we could now, which I, I kind of almost laugh at when I say, cause I think we could have, but I just think that, you know, perspective on this whole thing and how we cover it is ultimately more of that, that the crisis is more manufactured than the disease, if you will. No, you make a really good point, and I, I hope whoever listens to this podcast will pull out their cell phone and go to the C. Just type in CDC flu new cases, and then type in CDC COVID new cases, and you'll get the exact same charts and data. But but the flu looks so much more horrendously worse. Why is the news not putting those same exact charts up? Well, lessen the significance of what they're trying to say. It's incredibly, incredibly well said. Uh, Dr. Bob Adams, just an incredible story uh, from a military standpoint. You did so much. I, I wish we could have dove into so much more because it's, you know, we would have, this podcast would have lasted a week at that rate. You know, I mean, you, just, you, you were able to accomplish so much both, you know, as a SEAL and then as a medical doctor. And, you know, you talk about what happened with Delta and, of course, in combat, everything. And then, you know, everything you see in private practice it probably is a, a story unto its own. But, the two books, again, make sure you guys check them both out. Um, one of them is Swords and Saints, uh, A Doctor's Journey. That was your one that you wrote as a doctor. And then the one you wrote as a SEAL, Six Days of Impossible, Navy SEAL Hell Week. Just incredible, incredible stuff. Check them both out. Thank you so much for your time. Stay healthy, stay safe, and certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. Absolutely, sir. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Sports have a way of bringing us all together. And at Sleeper, we developed a fantasy platform designed to make leagues more fun and personal. Sleeper includes an integrated chat and every feature you could want for your NFL, NBA, and even eSport leagues. 
Plus, it's completely free with no ads. See why millions have made Sleeper the fastest-growing fantasy platform. Download Sleeper on the App Store or Google Play today. This Labor Day, put an end to junk sleep. Right now at Mattress Firm, save up to $500 on our top-rated brands when you get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin. Plus, get a free adjustable base when you spend $6.99 on Sealy. Or save up to 50% on hot buys from top brands like Sleepy's or Serta. With our highly trained sleep experts and our low price guarantee, you can rest assured you'll get the best bed at the best price. Unjunk your sleep only at Mattress Firm. Offer valid with qualifying purchase. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale.